Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome Alok, thanks so much for joining us today. Could you kick us off by sharing a little bit about your professional journey and what ultimately led you to Box? Hey Ryan, thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure being here. So I am currently VP of products at Box and I'm responsible for uh, our security, compliance and enterprise product portfolio. I started as an engineer, been in product role for quite some time, and uh, most of it has been in the space of security. Started with the era of enterprise on-prem and now to enterprise SaaS with Box. And one of the things that I felt uh, with security, the way it was done before, was it was always bolt on. And we didn't quite care about the experience for the end user. And I was part of the problem. And I really felt bad about it. And I wanted to solve this problem. And Box, with its focus around end user experience, it, it made total sense for me to join Box to solve this problem, do it the right way, and build security the way it should be, which is empowering. Uh, so that was my number one reason to join Box, besides all the good things that Box provides, like great culture, great team, and great people. Awesome. And how did you get into product management? Was it by something that you planned out, or was it by you know random opportunity that popped up? I was actually an engineering manager. I was playing the role of a product manager I just didn't know. So I was actually not just worried about the how of solving the problem, but also which problems to go and solve. So this is back when I was at uh, CA Technologies. I was running a middle-tier technology group, which was a common component used by about 40 or 50 different products at CA. And as the engineering manager, I was responsible for figuring out what each of those teams really needed to build so that we can define what we need to build to support them. And I really enjoyed doing that part. So I actually went out and asked my uh, superiors, my, uh, you know, my manager, the head of the business saying, this is a piece that I like doing. What is it? I really want to do more of it. Reading about it and talking to them, I learned this is a thing called product management because I did not know there was a thing called product management back then. They gave me an opportunity in the same company to uh, become a product manager. And since then, I never looked back. It's just fun finding the problem, finding interesting ways to solve those problems and taking that solution to the, uh, to the customers. Congrats. And I would say the most common path is from that engineering background. And if it's not from engineering, usually it's something random, maybe customer support, or maybe it's design, or maybe someone was a consultant. You know, I know Facebook hires a lot of consultants out of McKinsey and Bain for product management, but the engineering path is really that tried and true path in. And it's great to see that journey into product management, now VP of product at Box. And it looks like, you know, over the years, a very exciting journey for you. It looks like you've really progressed quickly, which is been exciting to see. And most recently, you know, you now see integration of Box Shield with Microsoft Information Protection against multiple other features. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision with Box Shield and what it's been like leading those efforts? Yeah, I think before I share the vision of Box, just kind of take you back to what Box is so that folks can understand what we do. So, you know, Box is content cloud, right? Like Salesforce has is a, is a sales cloud, Box is a content cloud. And, uh, you know, if you think of knowledge work or digital business, it's all about content, it's social, and, and it's all now remote and hybrid as people are coming back post-COVID. And in this environment, it's critical to collaborate uh, within and outside the organization and effortlessly run business processes such as insurance claims, if you're in the auto insurance business, 
or client onboarding process if you are in the financial services business. And, and you need to do that while being secure and compliant and integrate with best of breed apps so that the users can seamlessly do their work. So in short, we enable the users to be, uh, to be productive, to do their best possible work while being secure and compliant. That's what we do. So Shield vision is to deliver frictionless security to help our customers prevent leakage of sensitive information and detect content-centric threats, right? So we provide frictionless security around content in simple terms. Now, the key thing is, what does frictionless really mean? And to us, it's, uh, you know, there are four principles that we follow that all together means frictionless security. First one, it has to be a built-in approach, built as part of the fabric of collaboration and not a bolt-on uh, solution that people have to plug to close a gap, if you will. And the second principle is it needs to be transparent so that the policies defined by IT is not unknown or surprising for the end user, so that there is no asymmetry of information between what ID has defined as access policies and what end users experience. It should be one and the same, fully transparent. The third principle is it should be intelligent so that the system automatically understands what people do, how they collaborate, who they partner with, what are the cohort of users they work together with, so that we can understand the patterns and how people interact with each other and accordingly apply the right controls and detect suspicious behaviors. And the final piece, and this is the most important part of being frictionless, is that for a change, we want security to be empowering. Forever, security has been something that end users believe as or think of as blocker, that you know, once I see this particular message, it's, I'm blocked for doing something, I can't get my work done, I hate this thing. We want to change that perspective from the end user uh, you know, so that they feel that this security thing that exists out there, shield, is actually empowering me. It's so that I don't cause a breach in my organization. So that's what frictionless security means to us, which is built-in, transparent, intelligent, and empowering. And we started on that vision. We you know, worked with a lot of our customers trying to understand what uniquely they need and what were the common problems across all those customers to define the version one of the product. And we shipped that in 2019. And since then, it's been growing pretty rapidly, rapidly and it's the fastest growing add-on product in Box's history. That's amazing and definitely exciting. And I know security is very top of mind. We just got SOC 2 certified here at UserLeap and security is top of mind even for you know medium companies now. I think it's really moving down market segments and I think small companies will really care. And just so I understand, we use Google Drive today. We're still a, a startup, but we often share files with contractors and folders with contractors. And you know, I came across a file that a year ago I shared with a contractor that's no longer working with us. And so is this new protection system, box shield, able to really help kind of clean up access and controls for not only employees and contractors? So I'll give an example. Let's say there is a file and it has a lot of BII information, personally identifiable information like social security, credit card, et cetera. And you are not supposed to, by company policy, share with external partners that are not authorized for it. If you accidentally share that with me, the system, as you're sharing with me, realizes that and it prevents you from making that error. Unlike other approaches where you would share, I would get the file, I try to open the file, I get, either get an error message saying, you don't have the permission, I'm confused. And maybe you are confused when I reach out to you saying, hey, Ryan, I can't access this file. So that is friction. Or even worse, the possibility could be that you share the file with me, I downloaded the file on my machine, so the breach has already happened. And now somebody is sending you an alert uh, one or maybe two days later saying, hey, Ryan, that file that you shared is bad. Now we need to do some cleanup. So, so we try to solve the problem by moving as much left as possible by preventing it from happening. But as other behaviors are seen, 
we also detect that maybe this user is behaving in a risky way and the patterns that we're seeing in terms of how they're interacting with the content, how they're sharing the content, how they're downloading the content is an indicator of possible threat from the insider or this employee in the organization. So it's not necessarily cleanup. It's, uh, it's about preventing things from happening and then detecting problems before it become big or massive for an organization. Got it. And I'm sure any an employee would really appreciate that. It's certainly not by intention that you're sharing sensitive data. And so it sounds like really adding those safeguards to prevent that from happening so that we don't have to worry or deal with that breach after it happens. Exactly. The safeguard, the guardrails are to make users productive and the system takes care of the security concerns. And how did you approach developing this new program and, and this new set of functionality? Was this driven by the end purchaser or the end user or was it both? It was driven by a gap that IT was seeing in terms of preventing leakage of data and doing it in a way that end users are not impacted, the productivity is not impacted. Because the existing solutions in the market at the time when Shield was not there was bolt-on security tools that would sit as a layer between the user and the content stored inside Box. And it would, you know, for all the natural reasons, architecturally or process-wise, just impede user productivity. So that was the number one challenge that IT organizations had. So when we talked to them and, and we talked to hundreds of them, we found that this was a constant pain across all the customers. They really, really cared about the frictionless experience that we care about at Box. And the existing solution did not quite meet the data leakage prevention requirements that IT had because they were either not in line or they were detecting way too late. So the leakage was happening. And at the same time, they were actually uh, impeding user productivity and in some cases, IT teams can you know, complain about being too strong. These bold-on solutions were too strong or too hard on end users where they started finding innovative ways to work around the security tool, which was even worse. So that was the concern that we learned from our IT teams across different organizations that led to uh, us you know, believing that, yes, maybe the world needs one more security tool because the needs are not met today. And Box is uniquely positioned to solve these, uh, these problems. So the IT team was saying, hey, there's some workarounds here. These end users are skirting some protections in place and we need to get this cleaned up. And so you understand the problem and you know that you know, we need to find a better, more preventative way to avoid this from happening. How did you go to the end users to maybe ensure that they weren't going to then maybe you design something maybe a little bit different, but they weren't still taking those shortcuts or those circumvention measures? A lot of it was in the design of the product, right? So how do we make it simple for admins to define these policies, but at the same time, what is the overall experience for the end user? So we looked at a lot of data. So we looked at how people use Box, uh, you know, what are the common sharing patterns? Like some of these we know innately because that's what you do in day in, day out. But there were some interesting things to know. For example, if you look at detecting suspicious user behavior, then the question is, and there are behaviors that customers care about, but is there enough data in the system that we actually can detect that in a meaningful way so that we're not generating a lot of false positives. So we actually had to play a lot with all the event data and all the you know, interaction patterns that end users have in, in the product to know which patterns we can realistically de detect versus not, and then prioritize those things accordingly. When we looked at the access policies or classification-based security controls, we defined what the end user experience was. So that was a, a concern for us that maybe if we don't do it right, the productivity or the weekly active user count or monthly active user count might decrease because you're adding a security layer. But the proof for us was that the wows and the mouse were not changing and people were actively using the product, even though we were blocking certain actions because they were not appropriate or 
not meeting the organizational policy. So it required a lot of iteration on the UI and, and UX to make sure that we're building the right interface. And in that user testing process, you mentioned you're showing reviews and designs and mock-ups for the customers. What were some surprises that your team uncovered that maybe changed the overall direction or designs of the feature? When we started Shield, uh, it was primarily a passive threat detection product, which is looking at user behavioral patterns and through machine learning, identifying which of these patterns are not expected or suspicious and alerting security teams on it. But some of the, uh, the detection mechanisms that we, are, that we had actually weren't working as expected in, in a way that we thought user environment, our customers' environments look, look like X, but in reality, they actually look like Y. I'll give an example. So one of the alerts uh, was around detecting suspicious locations and suspicious user sessions, where we look at session attributes, fast change in IP addresses, location, et cetera, to see if the pattern is suspicious. And, and we learned that most of the organizations still have users coming in through the, uh, the VPN gateway. The change in location was not relevant because when you are working from your home and connecting to Box, and when you're coming to the VPN gateway and trying to access Box, it will look like you're accessing from two geographically far distances. One, let's say your house is in, is in California, but the VPN gateway is in New York. So it looked like you all of a sudden have two users coming from two different locations, but the reality is that's not true. So there were some of those cases where we had to take approaches in our ML to automatically figure that out, that it is indeed the same user coming in from the VPN gateway versus not. And so we had to update our algorithms to make that happen. So this is the change we, for example, found as we tested uh, more in real world uh, around what the environments look like. On the end user interface, for example, when you actually enforce an access policy, the question was, if you block the user and we give a clear message saying, you know, Ryan, you cannot share this file because it's sensitive or it's classified. The user you're sharing with uh, does not meet your corporate requirements. We found that just doing that was not enough. The users truly wanted to see if there's a classification label, what does the label really stand for? So if it's sensitive, what are security controls that are relevant? So when I apply as an end user, if I apply a classification label to a file, I want to know what are the security uh, controls that will follow the file with that classification label before I apply it. Similarly, you know, if the system automatically through machine learning applied a classification label to it, they wanted to understand why was this applied? What does it mean to me? What actions are prohibited? So there was some learning around how we expose that information in a way that it's in the right area of the UI. So it, you know, users know how to get that information, but not over flood the user with all the security information that are not pertinent to the file they're trying to work on or collaborate on. So let's say it detects a set of email addresses in the file. It could be user-driven. They can specify this as PII, or the system might pick that up and say, hey, this is PII data. And so they really wanted some transparency of what is that downstream impact by taking this action can I then not share it with these sets of groups? Exactly, exactly. Got it, okay. And then how about post-launch? I would imagine security for both the IT team and the end users is very sensitive and difficult. And you know, like you mentioned, the end user doesn't want that friction, which I totally agree, but it sounds like this is really trending towards that world of frictionless security. Were there any changes that you made post-launch about how it works for either the IT group or the end user? Actually, no significant changes post-launch. Most of the significant changes that we did was in the beta window. When we launched beta, I think this was, it was not truly like the true definition of beta. It was more like a very, very early, crappy product. Some customers were like, you know, really, really willing to try. 
Uh, so we launched it. Let's say the release was 15 to 18 months total, like start to end uh, for V1. Most of it, uh, of it was spent in beta. And during that process, we iterated on the product, both on threat detection side, as well as the classification-based security side. By the time we got to version one, uh, you know, we, from an MVP standpoint, we didn't make a significant change post-launch. Although uh, we knew there were some gaps, again, it's a standard definition of the MVP, where there were things that you knew you wanted to build, but you didn't ship it, that we started iterating on post version one. So we actually have more robust ways of classifying, more security controls, more ML around threat detection and so on. And I love that you're taking that MVP approach at Box with a security product. And I think that rapid agile format always leads to the best product. And it sounds like you're able to really avoid a lot of feature churn and functionality churn once it's already launched to the larger base. Is that how Box launches all of its features? You start with that beta and really start with something really simple? Or are there features where you really have to kind of perhaps keep this behind wraps until it's ready for a larger announcement? So it's a combination. There's no uh, one size fits all. So there's some areas, for example, we recently did an acquisition. Uh, we were working on a product that we announced uh, to the market, which is called Box Sign. That product needs to be at a certain level before we launch it because there are very established solutions out there in the market which provide e-signatures. So we have to meet that bar. We can't cut corners on that front. Now, there are some advanced features around signatures that uh, we may not have in version one, and that's totally okay. But when it comes to shipping and meeting the e-signature compliance and regulatory requirements, for example, we have to have to meet that. So we can't cut corners on that front. And uh, we will launch when it's right. We have set the date and timeline for it, but we will uh, make sure that you know we are not cutting corners on that front. But if, for example, if there is a machine learning-based feature in Shield where the best possible way of building the right product is to actually be out there because you need more data. Machine learning is all about data and you can't build the best ML. You may have the best algorithm, but you don't know if it's truly working unless you're out there. In those cases, one might say it's cutting corners, but we believe that being out there uh, in the forefront and going through varieties of different information and different organization actually gives you the the most opportunity to uh, build the product the right way. Now, it's equally important that you set the right expectations with your customers so that they know what to expect. But in some cases, it's better to be actually out there sooner. In some cases, not. So letting them know this is beta, this is alpha, this is still a little bit early, taking that really that Google driven approach. And how about the feature development process at Box? Is there anything that you've seen that's unique to Box, perhaps maybe because you're in the enterprise security space or now you're a shift to content cloud? Is there anything as your experience as a product manager? I know you mentor a lot of smaller companies, maybe some companies that are a little bit further along, but Anything that you can share with the audience here that you say, hey, this is really unique or a little bit different for how we build products? Our uh, focus around end-user experience, I would say, is is really, really unique. We, as a company, have been focused on end-user experience when it was not mainstream, (laughs) right? These days, I think everybody's talking about end-user experience and consumerization of IT is not just talk. It's actually a reality in the enterprise space, but Box has been doing that. That was very, very refreshing for me. To your earlier question, why I joined Box, that was one of the other reasons where you could actually, for a security professional like myself or a security product manager like myself, I can build the best possible security product while also focusing on end user experience and not cutting corners on either of those two sides. It's just unique and you can get that at a, at a company like Box. And I'm waiting for Salesforce to adopt that mindset as well. <laughs> it's funny, uh, Salesforce also has a product called Shield, but for a, for a different area. <laughs> 
Yeah, because I, I look at the new box designs and they look fantastic. It looks very, you know, it has that consumer feel. You can set your brand color, it inherits the brand color. It feels like it's an extension of your own org, which I'm sure that your customers are really, really looking for. They want it to feel more like an internal application than going to some third party vendor. Some products in the enterprise space have not gotten there. It's great to see Box. You know, it sounds like from the early days, really make that a focus and a core differentiator for how they can compete in the market. So really great to see that. I did want to transition into product market fit. I know you've given some talks and written a lot about product market fit and you've done some advising work with smaller startups and also gone on that journey from zero to 10 million in the enterprise space. And so given last year, you gave that presentation on the product market fit journey. Can you share a little bit about your perspective on product market fit and some of the important lessons you've learned from building multiple products from scratch? To me, you know, product market fit is just not the product and the market fit aspect. Actually, it's uh, to me more than that. I like to call it product market channel fit. And in the enterprise, it's really, really important because you have to have a channel to take that product to the, the buyer. And in the enterprise, uh, as you might know, the buyer and the user may not be the same. So you have to really, really pay attention to that, that aspect. So product market channel fit is what I put uh, personally focus on, my team focuses on. And you can think of product market channel fit or PMC fit as an optimization function, if you will. You know, if you're a mathematical geek in you, if you want to kind of look at it as a function, it's three variables, market, you know, product, and channel. And the interesting thing is that the, uh, the market doesn't really care about the product or the channel, right? Market is just about market. That's it. Market is king. Now, the channel has to cater to the market, but the channel doesn't necessarily care about the product. So as a product person, it's very important for you to understand that the product has to cater to the market and has to also cater to the channel so you actually can fit the requirements of the channel so you actually get to the market. So that's the, the, the interesting triangle around PMC that I'm talking about. Now, if you break it down, what does you know, market optimization mean or product optimization mean and, and what's the combination like? So if you think of uh, you know, market optimization, you could think of it as a set of activities that you perform and then the outcome that those activities should provide you so that you know you have achieved it or you have a way of measuring and seeing if you're getting there. And the set of activities that matter in the market optimization area is you know, discovery of problem or problem discovery. This is where you do in-person customer meeting. The human touch aspect is really, really important because being closer, being in those conversations, truly, really understanding and listening what the customers are talking about when they're sharing their pain points is really, really important early, right? And then you have to scale that out through a survey uh, because you talk to 10, 20 customers, you have a hypothesis. Now you want to scale and validate the hypothesis across various verticals and segments. So you run surveys and you probably, depending on the product, I'm not saying it's something that you have to do all the time. You might do a cheap prototype because it's a web-centric product, very quick to do prototype these days and, and see how you know, people are responding and resonating to that. So that's one. So problem discovery and then you have to discover customers. PMs don't tend to focus on that. And what customer discovery means is that there is a problem that multiple customers care about. And that group of customer is big enough that you actually have an attractive market. So that's the third thing you check for, which is, is the market attractive? So is there a problem? Are there enough customers who care about the problem? And then is this big enough for us to actually consider? And then the output of that, the outcome of this optimization process, the market optimization process is customer problem fit. As in you have consistent problem, it's an acute pain, there's no good alternative, but there are enough customers who care about that and getting validation on that, right? So that's step one. The second optimization uh, is around the product, right? Where you 
identify the right user journey through into conversations, through user testing, and so on and so forth. And then you validate the flows in the process. And then uh, you build and validate the product to make sure that it's uh, hitting the pain points that the customer had. My rule of thumb here is that it has to, the customer shared three pain points, three big pain points. It has to solve at least one of them. It doesn't have to be their number one pain point. If it's their one of their top three, it's good. It doesn't have to be their number one. Sometimes the number one pain point is so complex and so expensive to build that you should not do that, right? So as long as in one of the top three, it's good. And validate in this process, validate that it can be sold. As a product manager, you are the first salesperson. Validate that you actually can sell. You can pitch, it resonates, and people are willing to buy it right after beta, right? So, so that's the product optimization process in a nutshell. And, and in, this, in this process, you are looking for two specific outcomes. You're looking for problem solution fit. Product is, is usable and better than the alternatives in the market. That's a key test for us when we were building Shield. And the second thing you look for is solution channel fit. Is this sellable through available channels in the organization? So think about it this way. Box is in the, in the content cloud business, right? All of a sudden, we start building uh, you know, a product for marketing and marketing alone or for legal and the legal tech space. And we don't have any channel because uh, channel to legal people or channel to marketing people because we today sell to IT. And if you start building that, then either you should not build it because we don't have a channel or company as a whole decides that the opportunity on the legal space or in the marketing space is so big that we are determined to create the channel for it. So you have to make sure you go through that motion, right? So that you know there's a channel solution fit. And, and the last piece is the channel optimization where you look for activities like you know, repeatable sales motion. Can the non-founding team members, so as a product manager, I, I would call myself as the founder, right? So can anybody besides me or my counterpart on marketing can sell the product? Can salespeople can now sell it in a repeated way? Is the acquisition strategy, the customer, customer acquisition strategy working? Are we the lead gens are leading to pipeline, pipelines are closing and converting and closing with a good ratio? And then tune the pricing. I don't like boiling the ocean around pricing when it comes to enterprise SaaS. Very useful exercise in the consumer space, not so much in the enterprise, enterprise space, if, unless the business model of the, the company in general is changing. If it's not, then keep it simple, align with the existing pricing model, tiers, and structure, and just go out there and see how people are responding. Because in the enterprise space, one of the key lessons is that people buy against the budget. It doesn't really matter what pricing tier you have. You know what? The sales guy is going to, or the sales uh, you know, person is going to, fit the right tier with the right discount against the budget. That's just fact of life. So don't worry too much about pricing, see how things are landing and then figure out, okay, you know what, based on some initial sales data, we know that this is where the average selling price is landing. And hence, maybe for the list price being X, the, the required discount ratio for our sales organization uh, holistically should be A, B, or C. You can figure out those gates for your organization. Anyways, the bottom line in this case, uh, the outcome is that you now should have the channel market fit. As in, you have repeatable sales, your ARR is growing, and your net retention is at 110% or higher. So those are three uh, optimization levers you have, market, product, and channel. And you're looking for, in summary, customer problem fit. You're looking for problem solution fit. You're looking for solution channel fit. And you're looking for channel market fit. So I gave a lot of terms here, but those are really, really important to grok so that you are in the process, building the product the right way. And don't forget, product market channel fit is not a destination. It's actually a journey. So you never get there. Like you are moving in the right direction. You know you are 
you have uh, a fit because it's resonating, it's working. But if you don't keep up, you might lose the fit because market continues to evolve and you will again be out of the fit and your product is not relevant anymore. So always keep at it. Yeah. And I love how you're adding channel. I think a lot of founders don't really think around distribution and go to market and maybe they do figure out product market fit, but you then need to distribute the product to the market. And it takes time. I think a lot of times it takes longer than you expected. One thing that I, I did really hear that I wanted to drill into is you talked about the customer, uh, the problem solution fit, which I think is really interesting. And I would say that most founders in my experience skip over measuring the problem and they jump straight to the product market fit. And so you might have a product that you've built and you might not have that product market fit score that you're looking for. But if you're solving the wrong problem or a problem that maybe people don't really care deeply about, then you might not ever get that product market fit score that you're looking for. So I love how you're first taking a step back. Let's make sure the problem and the solution are worth solving. And there's something here before we move into the product, which is really how we're going to execute against solving this problem. Precisely. I think uh, not concluding that this is a problem worth solving and that people who actually would pay for solving this problem is a mistake. And, And many times people, you know, go by belief on what they believe the market is going to be and what, you know, where it's headed and, and what it needs maybe two years from now. And it's a tough thing, by the way, in many cases, when you're doing uh, building a net new category, you don't really have a lot of data to go by. You have to use your gut to some level, but constant conversation and asking this question again and again and again, you would see that there's a certain pattern in which people respond and you have to be able to distinguish between customers want versus customer need. And it's a very important skill to have. It's very easy to confuse the two. Very, very easy. Ryan, I think uh, you probably have talked in one of your uh, sessions earlier where there are ways to ask the question. If you ask, well, what do you want? <laughs> the customer is going to say, yeah, I want this. Or even worse, you can go to the customer and say, hey, we're thinking of building this. What do you think? Do you, do you think you care about this problem? And they would say, yeah, of course I care about this problem. But if you give them you know, five competing opportunity or options, they will tell you <laughs> where where they will actually pay, put their money, right? So, so there are ways to know that. Their prioritized order. I read about that today on LinkedIn. It's very true. It's not about asking about something in a vacuum. Do you want this? Because most likely it will say yes. They don't realize how long it takes to bring that product to market. And you can always think around the level of effort afterwards and kind of measure it and use a framework. But it's really having them prioritize what's most impactful to them. And I think you're right, is that you know, maybe their number one problem is make the internet faster. There's some problems that are maybe you know you want to not solve and just let them exist and stay true, but dig into something else. And for anyone listening who wants to measure some of these questions, we have a really great template library at userleap.com. Check out our template gallery. And we have a lot of these exact same questions already ready to go. A couple clicks to go live. We usually measure product market fit with our own platform. We fortunately have 50% of people without any segmentation would say they're never, they're very disappointed if usually did not exist. So feel really good about that. But I will say though, that it, when you look at the Drew Houstons and a lot of folks, they say that maybe it's a landmine or maybe it's this binary event, you know, segment. I think in some cases it might be that kind of binary outcome and you have and you don't, but I think for some folks, it is more of a gradual process and a lot of iteration that takes place. And I think Rahul also did a lot of segmentation and analysis as well. Can you touch on that on maybe founders that don't have it, how they can get there? 
I use it uh, in a different way. I actually use it as a way to debug a product market channel fit problem. So let's say you're trying to optimize for the product or you're trying to optimize product for a given channel and so on and so forth, but you're not getting there. And the question is, why, what's wrong? Why am I not trending in the direction? I believe it. It seems like the conversations are, are in the right direction, but the, the metrics and the numbers are not going that direction. So what's going on? The approach uh, you know, is actually very simple, which is you segment the thing that you're seeing, right? One very common question is like, you know, the dissatisfaction question. And based on that, as an example, you actually can segment your users and, and then you can analyze, you know, why are they saying that? Who's on the cusp of that? Either towards, you know, fully dissatisfied if the feature is taken away versus not. And, and, and some, there are some interesting findings when you actually try to analyze data and uh, those overlaps, if you will. And then you build an, 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 an iterate and repeat, right? So it's literally, you have to segment the problem that you're seeing based on your hypothesis and the situation you're in, and then just keep iterating on segment, analyze, build, and, and repeat. Trying different things, seeing what works, see if you can get to that end outcome that you're looking for. And do you use any of these frameworks at Box at all? Maybe bringing new features to market? You mentioned it's a journey. Do you really stress test maybe features you launched a while ago to see if they're still serving customer needs? So we do use, and my team does use the product market fit uh, and channel fit approaches. I would not say that we have completely automated the whole thing. Think of it like uh, you know, a process or a template that we follow uh, as we build features. In some cases, we have metrics. In some cases, just observation, customer conversations, and dialogues that actually help us. When it comes to making the business case for, let's say, the next product uh, that you're building, the market optimization aspect is really, really important. We pay a lot of attention to, is this problem worth solving? And what evidences do we have that prove that this is the problem that is worth solving. Do we have a customer problem fit? Without that, there's no point funding anything, right? And once uh, you know something is funded, you actually start on the uh, on the product optimization path, which is you don't have like the full blown team that you had asked for. You have a very small team, but you're trying to iterate very very quickly on the approaches you can take to solve the problem. And this is where some simple user testing data is useful on prototypes, not the full blown product. And also surveys uh, kind of help when you actually are iterating. You build feature one, now you're trying to build feature two. Is it feature number two or uh, item number 20 that you had in your backlog? Which one should you prioritize? So as you go through it in your agile planning and execution process, you actually keep, keep an eye on those things. But once you are at beta, you have to have uh, metrics that the product is actually generating for you in terms of, in our case, it's alerts being generated, alerts being viewed, actions being taken. And in case of uh, data leakage prevention, files being classified, how many files are being classified, how many files have been prevented from being accidentally shared in a given organization and across our entire customer base. So those are some of the metrics that we pay attention to. And we expect these numbers to kind of keep going up in the right direction. As the number of seats under Shield are growing, uh, we have a certain number that we're looking at in terms of our classification and the feature adoption uh, trends in parallel to the growth of number of seats. So mixing that qualitative and that behavioral, looking at both together. If you do want to automate it, happy to chat. Let me know. <laughs> I love, though, that your team is employing that because I did all of our sales until Sonia joined our, our company about six months ago. And I used to always pitch the product market fit to the early stage companies and then more of the revenue generating metrics, you know, how to increase onboarding conversion or reduce drop off or reduce churn for the larger companies. But I'm now seeing a lot of these larger, more mature orgs come and say, hey, we actually want to measure product market fit, 
we're bringing new products to market. Maybe we we want to remeasure product market fit. We want to see if we still have it. I've actually been at companies that lost product market fit and had to find it again through you know a different journey. You really had that S curve journey where things flatline and you had to take things in a different position over a certain amount of ARR and perhaps market changes, or there was competitive reactions to the market that was the product that was developed. And so it's great to see that a mature org like Box is employing these techniques because I would challenge anyone out there with product market fit and you think around future customer fit and problem solution fit. These aren't just questions for the early stage companies that are just getting started and testing their existence, but it's probably something we should be doing as product managers and really stress testing our ideas from the beginning and thinking around problem solution fit before we bring this solution to market. Let's actually make sure to your point, it is worth solving and not something that we're just going to go with our own intuition and maybe build, but perhaps not see that market reaction that we're looking for. In terms of challenges, uh, Ryan, one thing I would call out, which is if you look at metrics, it's one thing around what you can measure from the product. But if you look at the bigger problem around adoption in the enterprise, the problem is more around not to the product, because let's say in a given company like Box, or you can take any other enterprise for that matter, enterprise SaaS, customers are buying more than one product from that organization. So now it's a question of if this product is not getting deployed, it's because it's actually in sequence. It's uh, two months or three months or four quarters from now before this specific project is done in an enterprise, because everything is like going from going through IT in a sequence step. Is it that? Is it something else? So you have to pay attention to the post-sales processes in your organization. What I found is that the harder part of the problem seems to be not necessarily the product because it's completely, in, in a way, in the control of the, the product team, the product and the build organization. But aligning on metrics around what happens when the product, once the product is sold, and uh, so that consulting, customer success, product, marketing, all of them are looking at the same metrics that are key indicators of the success of the product in the organization is a very important thing for product people to focus on. It's not just the product, but also things within your organization around OKR and metric alignment that are critical for success. Thinking holistically about all the different teams involved, is customer success trained? Do they know about it? Are they really educating users on how to use the product? And you're totally right. It's not just having that code shipped and that designs and those pixels shipped out the door. It's thinking around that product in a larger existence amongst a much larger company, amongst many other tools that that end user might be using, considered against many other competitors. And having that broad mindset, I would say from someone to go from really that IC role to that leadership role, it's really that shift. Can they make that shift strategically and really think around all the market forces? It takes a lot of time. And you know, you're know, you certainly someone who's gotten there, but something that I love to see ICPMs really start to think about early, knowing that that's going to be really a key part in the next stage of their career. We're right at time here. So I wanted to wrap up with our last question. What's your top piece of advice for other product managers who want to create products people love? In the enterprise SaaS space, I would just break it down to the two things, which is behaviors that I think the mindsets that product people should have, product leaders should have. and then things to keep in mind as you are working on the product or the next big idea. So on the behavioral side, it's very, very important that you need to have mindset that includes grit to push through ambiguity. There will be a lot of ambiguity as you work through any brand new product or going after a brand new market, and you'll have to push through the status quo as well. So that's one. The, the second thing I would say is uh, be a huge simplifier and multiplier. 
people often focus on multipli- uh, the multiplier aspect, but they don't focus on the simplifier aspect. It's so damn important. If you can do that, it's an amazing skill to have. If you can boil down the entire thing to two simple messages that everybody can repeat in the organization, especially sales, the outcome is tremendous. And it's a hard thing to do, by the way. The other thing I would say is deeply understand what leverage means. Each and everything you do as a product manager, if you are someone with a CEO mindset, and Ryan, you probably know this inside out, which is anything you do, whether it's time, whether it's a feature, whether it's a meeting, it's all about leverage. So make sure that you think in terms of leverage. Iterate, but iterate with a focus on learning. Everything you do has to be with the intent of learning. What is the new thing? What can I do better? And finally, have the hustle. Especially when you're building version one product, you are, believe me, you are the first salesperson for the product. You are the first one to sell the product because nobody knows how to sell it because the product did not exist. So everybody in the organization is looking at how do I position this? How do I message this? How do I demo this? So be ready. We have the hustle to do that. Get the first five, 10 customers. Everybody will learn and then good things will happen. So I think those are some of the mindset and behavioral aspects I would say you should have. It's really important that uh, you have organizational alignment on the vision and the strategy that you're working on. You might have the best possible strategy, the best possible vision, but if the organization is not aligned, it may not go anywhere because very simple, everybody, your team, your peers, your execs, think of them as vectors in the organization. And the execution that you're working on is some of all those vectors. And if they're not aligned in the same direction, guess what? The outcome will be suboptimal. So, so make sure you are paying attention to everybody in the organization, getting the vision and strategy. Differentiate between uh, wants versus needs. That's an important you know, listening skill. But also sometimes it's, uh, it's about, even if you found the, the most important need the customer has, it may not be aligned with your vision or mission. It may not be. And it's okay to not build those. But if you find a lot of those uh, needs that are not aligned with your vision or the mission, maybe you should revisit your <laughs> mission or mission. Keep that in mind. It's not like one or the other. Be uh, aware that if a lot of needs are not tied, then maybe you are, your vision or the mission is not right. right? So be open to that as well. And be aware, uh, be aware of feature 421 problem, especially in enterprise SaaS. With enterprise, what happens is each enterprise tends to act and behave differently. You'll have needs coming from each of them that does not meet multiple organization. And for that one big customer, for one large organization, you end up building feature, eventually making your product complex. And with complexity, you now are impeding your adoption. And with impeded adoption, you are impacting your retention rate. And with that, everything goes downhill. So keep an eye on it. Don't add more features. More, more features does not mean more successful product. So I would just say these uh, three things are common pitfalls in enterprise that I would say any product leader should keep an eye on. Awesome. Really great perspective. And we've had a few B2C leaders on past episodes. And so I think this is gonna be really refreshing for anyone working in the B2B space, the enterprise space, very unique perspective, very refreshing to hear today. Alok, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to hear about your journey at Box and how you've been really thinking around areas like product market fit, feature development, and some of these really critical areas that product managers need to overcome to hit their own goals internally. And thanks for being on the show. Is there anywhere we can find you online, perhaps on Twitter or LinkedIn? Yeah, so you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Search me by Alok Ojha, you'll find it. And on Twitter, it's uh, I am Alok. So at I A M am Alok. And you can email me uh, alok at box.com if you uh, have any questions, if you have a, want to have a dialogue. I'm happy to uh, have a chat with you all. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ryan. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at userleap.com. And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurveys help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. Usually is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.